Nothing escapes the observation of him with whom we have to do. His eyes are ever upon all the ways of men, whether they be monarchs or menials. None are too high or independent to be above his control, and none are too low or insignificant to be overlooked by him. All we do or say or think is perfectly known to the Lord, and in that day we shall be called upon to render a full account. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that ye go to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Akron? Verse 3. The Hebrew is more expressive and emphatic than the English. Is it because there is no God, none in Israel, that you turn for information to the emissaries of Satan? Not only had the true and living God made himself known to Israel, but he was in covenant relationship with them. This it is which explains the angel of the Lord addressing himself to Elijah on this occasion, emphasizing as it did that blessed relationship which the king was repudiating. It was the angel of the covenant, Exodus 23, verse 23, etc. As such, Jehovah had given clear demonstration of himself to Ahaziah in his own lifetime. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Verse 4 Having reproved the awful sin of Ahaziah, the servant of God now pronounces judgment on him. Here then was the last and solemn task of Elijah, to pass the capital sentence upon the apostate king. Unto the widow of Zarephath God had made him the savor of life unto life, but unto Ahab and now to his son he became the savor of death unto death. Varied indeed are the tasks assigned unto the ministers of the gospel, according as they are called upon to comfort God's people and feed his sheep or warn the wicked and denounce evildoers. Thus it was with their great exemplar, both benedictions and maledictions were found on his lips, though most congregations are far more familiar with the former than the latter. Yet it will be found that his blessings in Matthew 5 are balanced by an equal number of woes in Matthew 23. It should be duly noted that those woes were uttered by the Lord Jesus at the close of his public ministry, and though the end of the world may not be at hand, no one on earth knows, yet it seems evident that the end of the present order of things, civilization, is imminent. And therefore the servants of Christ have a thankless task before them today. Oh, that grace may preserve them faithful unto death. Chapter 33, The Minister of Vengeance And Elijah departed, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 4. At his master's bidding, the prophet had gone forth to meet the servants of Ahaziah, and delivered what the Lord had commissioned him, and had sent them back with this message to their king, and then took his leave of them. His departure was not for the purpose of concealing himself, but to return to his communion with God. It was to the top of the hill, verse 9, that he retired. Typically, it spoke of moral separation from and elevation above the world. We have to betake ourselves to the secret place of the Most High, and this is not to be found near the giddy and bustling crowds if we are to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91, verse 1. It is from the mercy seat his voice is heard speaking. Number 7, verse 89. On a previous occasion, we have seen Elijah making for the mountaintop as soon as his public work was completed. 
1 Kings chapter 18, verse 42. What an object lesson is there here for all the servants of Christ when they have delivered their message to retire from the public eye and get alone with God as their Savior before them was wont to do. The top of the hill is also the place of observation and vision. Oh, to make spiritual observatories of our private rooms. There is nothing in the sacred narrative which indicates the nationality of these messengers of Ahaziah. If they were Israelites, they could scarcely be ignorant of the prophet's identity when he so suddenly accosted them and so dramatically announced the doom of their master. If they were foreigners imported from Tyre by Jezebel, they were probably ignorant of the mighty Tishbite, for some years had elapsed since his last public appearance. Whoever they were, these men were so impressed by that commanding figure and his authoritative tone, so awed by his knowledge of their mission and so terrified by his pronouncement, that they at once abandoned their quest and returned to the king. He who could tell what Ahaziah thought and said could evidently foretell the outcome of his sickness. They dared not proceed on their journey to Ekron. That illustrated an important principle. When a servant of God is energized by an ungrieved spirit, his message carries conviction and strikes terror into the hearts of his hearers. Just as Herod feared John the Baptist, Mark 6.20, and Felix trembled before Paul, Acts 24.25. But it is not talking to the wicked about the love of God which will produce such effects, nor will such conscience soothers be owned of heaven. Rather is it those who declare, as Elijah of Ahaziah, Thou shalt surely die. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? Verse 5. It must have been both a surprise and a shock to the king when his servants returned unto him so quickly, for he knew that sufficient time had not elapsed for them to have journeyed to Ekron in Philistia and back again. His question expresses annoyance, a reprimand for their being remiss in discharging his commission. Kings in that day were accustomed to receive blind obedience from their subjects, and woe be unto those who cross their imperial wills. This only serves to emphasize the effect which the appearance and words of Elijah made upon them. From the next verse we learn that the prophet had bidden them, Go turn again unto the king that sent you, and repeat my message unto him. And though their doing so meant placing their lives in jeopardy, nevertheless they carried out the prophet's order. How they put to shame thousands of those professing to be servants of Christ, who for many years past have studiously withheld that which their auditors most needed to hear, and criminally substituted a message of peace, peace, when there was no peace for them, and that in days when a faithful proclamation of the truth had not endangered their persons. Surely these messengers of Ahaziah will yet rise up in judgment against all such faithless time-servers, and they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. Verse 6 From their omission of his name, and by referring to Elijah simply as a man, it seems clear that these messengers of the king were ignorant of the prophet's identity. But they had been so overawed by his appearance 
and the solemnity of his manner, and were so convinced his announcement would be verified that they deemed themselves warranted in abandoning their journey and returning to their master. Accordingly, they delivered a plain, straightforward account of what had occurred, and faithfully reported Elijah's pronouncement. They knew full well that such a message must prove most unwelcome to the king, yet they made no attempt to alter its tone or soften it down. They shrank not from telling Ahaziah to his face that sentence of death had gone out against him. Again we say, how these men put to shame the temporizing, cowardly, and pew-flattering occupants of the pulpit. Alas, how often is more sincerity and fidelity to be found among open worldlings than in those with the highest spiritual pretenses. And he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? Verse 7 No doubt the king was fairly well convinced as to who it was that had dared to cross their path and send him such a message, but to make quite sure he bids his servants describe the mysterious stranger. What was his appearance? How was he clothed? And in what manner did he address you? How that illustrates one of the chief traits of the unregenerate. It was not the message which Ahaziah now inquired about, but the man who uttered it. Yet surely his own conscience could warn him that no mere man could be the author of such a message. And is not this the common tendency of the unconverted, that instead of taking to heart what is said, they fix their attention on who says it? Such is poor fallen human nature. When a true servant of God is sent and delivers a searching word, people seek to evade it by occupying themselves with his personality, his style of delivery, his denominational affiliation, anything secondary, as long as it serves to crowd out that which is of supreme moment. Yet when the postman hands them an important business letter, they are not concerned about his appearance. And they answered him, He was a hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. Verse 8 We do not regard this as a description of his person so much as of his attire. Concerning John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1.17, it is recorded that he had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. Matthew 3.4 Thus we understand that the outward garment of Elijah was made of skins, See Hebrews 11, verse 34, girded about by a strip of undressed leather. That the prophets had some such distinguishing garb is clear from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4, by the false prophets assuming the same in order to beguile the people, a garment of hair to deceive. In that era when instruction was given to the eye as well as the ear by symbols and shadows, that uncouth dress denoted the prophet's mortification to the world and expressed his concern and sorrow for the idolatry and iniquity of his people, just as the putting on of sackcloth by others signified humility and grief. For other references to the symbolic meaning of the prophet's dress and actions, compare 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 28 through 31, and chapter 22, verse 11. Also Acts chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite, verse 8. There could be no mistake. The king knew now who it was that had sent such a solemn message to him. And what effect was produced upon him? Was he awed and humbled? Did he now bewail his sins and cry unto God for mercy? Far from it. He had learned nothing from his father's awful end. 
The severe affliction under which he was suffering softened him not. Even the near approach of death made no difference. He was incensed against the prophet and determined to destroy him. Had Elijah sent him a lying and flattering word, that had been acceptable, but the truth he could not bear. How like the degenerate generation in which our lot is cast, who had rather be bombed to death in places of amusement than be found on their faces before God. Ahaziah was young and arrogant, not at all disposed to receive reproof or endure opposition to his will, no matter from what quarter it proceeded, no, not even from Jehovah himself. The message from Elijah, though in God's name and by his express command, enraged the monarch beyond measure, and instantly he resolves on the death of the prophet, though he had done nothing more than his duty. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. Verse 9. Ahaziah was at no loss to find wicked men ready to execute the most desperate and impious orders. This company of soldiers went forth promptly to seize the Lord's servant. They found him sitting composedly upon an eminence. The spirit of the captain evidenced that his heart was thoroughly in his task, for he insolently addressed Elijah as, Thou man of God, which was by way of derision and insult. It was as though he had said, Thou claimest Jehovah as thy master. We come to thee in the name of a greater than he. King Ahaziah says, Come down. Fearful effrontery and blasphemy was that. It was not only an insult to Elijah, but to Elijah's God, an insult which was not suffered to go unchallenged. How often in the past have the wicked made a mock at sacred things, and turned the very terms by which God designates his people into epithets of reproach sneeringly dubbing them the elect, saints, etc. That they do so no longer is because the fine gold has become dim. Godliness is no more a reality and a rebuke to the impious. Who would think of designating the average clergyman a man of God? Rather does he wish to be known as a good mixer, a man of the world. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, Then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. Verse 10 There was no personal vindictiveness in the terrible reply of Elijah, but a consuming zeal for the glory of God, which had been so blatantly insulted by this captain. The king's agent had jibed at his being a man of God, and now he should be furnished with summary proof whether or no the maker of heaven and earth owned the prophet as his servant. The insolence and impiety of this man, who had insulted Jehovah and his ambassador, should meet with swift judgment. And there came down fire from heaven, and consumed him and his fifty. Verse 10. Sure sign was this that Elijah had not been actuated by any spirit of revenge, for in such a case God would not have responded to his appeal. On an earlier occasion the fire of the Lord had fallen upon and consumed the sacrifice, 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 38 But here it falls on sinners who had slighted that sacrifice. So shall it again be when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 
Surely so manifest an interposition of God would serve as a deterrent, if not to the abandoned king, yet to his servants, so that no further attempt would be made to apprehend Elijah. But no, again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. Verse 11. It is hard to say which on this occasion was the more remarkable, the madness of the wounded Ahaziah when the report of the awful event reached him or the presumption of this officer and his soldiers. This second captain took no warning from what had befallen the first and his soldiers. Was the calamity which overtook them attributed to chance, to some lightning or fireball happening to consume them, or was he recklessly determined to brave things out? Like his predecessor, he addressed the prophet in the language of insulting derision, though using more peremptory terms than the former, come down quickly. See once more how sin hardens the heart and ripens men for judgment. And who maketh thee to differ? To what desperate lengths might the writer and the reader have gone if the mercy of God had not interposed and stopped us in our mad career? Oh, what praise is due unto sovereign grace, which snatched me as a brand from the burning. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. Verse 12. Proof had already been given that Jehovah was omniscient. Verse 4. Now they should know he is omnipotent. What is man in the hands of his maker? One flash of lightning and fifty-one of his enemies become burnt stubble. And if all the hosts of Israel, yea, the entire human race, had been assembled there, it had needed no other force. Then what folly is it for him whose breath is in his nostrils to contend with the Almighty? Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Some have blamed Elijah for destroying those men, overlooking the fact that he could no more bring down fire from heaven than they can. Elijah simply announced on these occasions what God had himself determined to do. Nor was it to please the prophet that the Lord had acted, or to gratify any vindictive passion in himself, but to show forth his power and justice. It cannot be said the soldiers were innocent, for they were performing no military duty, but openly fighting against heaven, as the language of the third captain indicates. This has been recorded as a lasting warning for all ages, that those who mock and persecute God's faithful ministers will not escape his punishment. On the other hand, those who have befriended them shall by no means lose their reward. And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. Verse 13. What fearful obstinacy is there here, deliberately hardening his heart. Ahaziah strengthened himself against the Almighty and makes one more attempt to do the prophet harm. Though on his deathbed, and knowing the divine judgment which had befallen two companies of his soldiers, as verse 14 intimates, yet he persists in stretching forth his hand against Jehovah's anointed, and exposes to destruction another of his captains with his body of men. So too are those words of holy writ, Though thou shouldst bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. Proverbs 27, verse 22. And why is this? Because the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. Ecclesiastes 9, 3. 
In view of such unerring declarations, and with such examples as Pharaoh, Ahab, and Ahaziah before us, we ought not to be in the least surprised or startled by what we see and read of what is taking place in the world today. Saddened and solemnized we should be, but not staggered and nonplussed. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah, and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore let my life now be precious in thy sight. Verses 13 and 14 This man was of a different disposition from the two who had preceded him. Even in the military forces God has a remnant according to the election of grace. Daring not to attempt anything against Elijah, he employed humble submission and fervent entreaties with every expression of respect. It was an affecting appeal, a real prayer. He attributed the death of the previous companies to its true cause and appears to have had an awful sense of the justice of God. He owns that their lives lay at the prophet's mercy and begs that they may be spared. Thus did Jehovah provide not only for the security but also the honor of Elijah as he did for Moses when Pharaoh had threatened to put him to death. Exodus chapter 11 verse 8 The appeal of this captain was not in vain. Our God is ever ready to forgive the humble suppliant, however rebellious he may have been, and the way to prevail with him is to bow before him. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. Verse 15 This clearly demonstrates that Elijah waited for the divine impulse and was entirely guided by it, in the former instances of severity. Neither God nor his servant could have any pleasure in taking away the lives of those who approached them in a becoming manner. It was to punish them for their scorn and impiety that the others had been slain. But this captain came with fear and trembling, not with ill will to the prophet nor contempt for his master. Accordingly he found mercy and favor. Not only were their lives preserved, but the captain succeeds in his errand. Elijah shall go with him to the king. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted, whereas those who exalt themselves shall be abased. Let us learn from Elijah's example to deal kindly toward those who may have been employed against us when they evidence their repentance and entreat our clemency. Mark, it was the angel of the Lord who again addressed the prophet. But what a test of his obedience and courage! The Tishbite had greatly exasperated Jezebel and her party, and now her reigning son must have been furious at him. Nevertheless, he might safely venture into the presence of his raging foes, seeing that the Lord had bidden him to do so with the assurance, Be not afraid. They could not move a finger against him without God's permission. God's people are quite safe in his hands, and faith may ever appropriate the triumphant language of Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. And he arose and went down with him unto the king, verse 15, readily and boldly, not fearing his wrath. He made no objection and indicated no fear for his safety, though the king was enraged and would be surrounded by numerous attendants. He committed himself to the Lord and felt safe under his promise and protection. What a striking instance of the prophet's faith and obedience to God. But Elijah did not go to confront the king until bidden by the Lord to do so. 
teaching his servants not to act presumptuously by recklessly and needlessly exposing themselves unto danger. But as soon as he required it, he went promptly, encouraging us to follow the leadings of providence, trusting God in the way of duty, and saying, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verse 6. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, etc. Verse 16. Elijah now repeats to the king without any altercation what he had said to his servants. Without fear or mincing the matter, the prophet spoke God's word plainly and faithfully to Ahaziah. In the name of him in whose hands are both life and death, he reproved the monarch for his sin and then pronounced sentence upon him. What an awful message for him to receive that he should go from his bed to hell. Having discharged his commission, the Tishbite departed without molestation. Enraged as were Jezebel and her party, the king and his attendants, they were as meek as lambs and as silent as statues. The prophet went in and out among them with perfect safety, receiving no more harm than Daniel when cast into the lion's den, because he trusted in God. Let this cause us to go forth firmly but humbly in the discharge of our duty. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. Verse 17 Chapter 34 Elijah's Departure The departure of Elijah from this world was even more striking and remarkable than had been his entrance upon the stage of public action. Yet the supernatural character of his exit was but the fitting finale to such a remarkable course. No ordinary career was his, and no commonplace end to it would have seemed suitable. Miracle had attended him wherever he had gone, and a miracle brought about his departure from this scene. He had ministered during stormy times. Again and again did he call down divine judgments upon the heads of evildoers, and at the last a whirlwind carried him away from this earth. In answer to his prayer, the fire of the Lord had fallen upon Mount Carmel, and again on those who sought to take his life. 2 Kings 1.12 And at the close a chariot of fire and horses of fire parted him asunder from Elisha. At the beginning of his dramatic career he declared, The Lord, the Lord God of Israel, before whom I stand, 1 Kings 17.1 And at its conclusion he was mysteriously wrapped into his immediate presence without passing through the portals of death. Before looking more closely at the startling exit, let us briefly review his life, summarize its principal features, and seek to mark its leading lessons. The life of Elijah was not the career of some supernatural being who tabernacled among men for a brief season. He was no angelic creature in human form. It is true that nothing is recorded of his parentage, his birth, or early life, but the concept of any superhuman origin is entirely excluded by that expression of the Holy Spirit. Elijah was a man, subject to like passions as we are. James 5.17 He too was a fallen descendant of Adam, harassed by the same depraved inclinations, subject to the same temptations, annoyed by the same devil, meeting with the same trials and oppositions as both writer and reader experience. Yet did he trust in the same Savior, walk by the same faith, and have all his needs supplied by the same gracious and faithful God as it is our privilege to do. A study of his life is particularly pertinent today, for our lot is cast in times which closely resemble those which he encountered. Varied and valuable are the lessons which his life illustrated and exemplified, 
the chief of which we have sought to point out in this book. Our present task is to summarize the leading points among them. Number one, Elijah was a man who walked by faith and not by sight, and walking by faith is not a mystical or nebulous thing, but an intensely practical experience. Faith does more than rest upon the bare letter of Scripture. It brings the living God into a scene of death and enables its possessor to endure by seeing him who is invisible. Where faith is really an exercise, it looks beyond distressing and distracting circumstances and is occupied with him who regulates all circumstances. It was faith in God which enabled Elijah to sojourn by the brook Cherith, there to be fed by the ravens. The skeptic supposes that faith is mere credulity or a species of religious fanaticism, for he knows not of the sure foundation on which it rests. The Lord had told his servant, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there, and the prophet judged him faithful who had promised, and therefore he was not put to confusion. And that is recorded for our encouragement. Faith looks beyond the promise to the promiser, and God never fails those who trust alone in him and rely fully upon him. It was faith which had moved Elijah to sojourn with the desolate widow of Zarephath, when she and her son were at a point of starvation. To natural instincts it seemed cruel to impose himself upon her. To carnal reason it appeared a suicidal policy. But Jehovah had said, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee there. And the prophet staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Ah, faith looks too, and counts upon the living God with whom nothing is too hard. Nothing, my reader, honors God so much as faith in himself, and nothing so dishonors him as our unbelief. It was by faith that Elijah returned to Jezreel and bearded the lion in his den, telling Ahab to his face his impending doom and announcing the awful judgment which would surely seize upon his wife. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 Elijah heard, believed, and acted. Yes, acted, for a faith without works is but a dead and worthless one. Obedience is nothing but faith in exercise, directed by the divine authority, responding to the divine will. Number two, Elijah was a man who walked in manifest separation from the evil around him. Alas, the policy prevailing in Christendom today is to walk arm in arm with the world to be a good mixer if you wish to win the young people. It is argued that we cannot expect them to ascend to the spiritual plane, so the only way for the Christian to reach and help them is by descending to theirs. But such reasoning as, let us do evil that good may come, finds no support in the word of God, but rather emphatic refutation and condemnation. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians 5.11 Are the preemptory demands. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4.4 As true in this twentieth century as in the first. For it is never right to do wrong. God has not called his people to win the world to Christ. Rather does he require them, by their lives, to witness against it. Nothing is more marked about Elijah than his uncompromising separation from the abounding evil all around him. We never find him fraternizing with the people of his degenerate day, but constantly reproving them. He was indeed a stranger and pilgrim here. 
No doubt many considered him selfish and unsociable and probably charged him with assuming an I am holier than thou attitude. Ah, Christian reader, you must not expect mere religionists, empty professors, to appreciate your motives or understand your ways. The world knoweth us not, 1 John 3, 1. God leaves his people here to witness for Christ, and the only way to do that is to walk with Christ. Thus we are bidden to go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Hebrews 13.13 We cannot walk with Christ except we be where his spirit is, outside the apostate mass, apart from all that dishonors and disowns the Lord Jesus, and that inevitably involves bearing his reproach. Number three, Elijah was a man of marked elevation of spirit. Possibly that expression is a new one to some of our readers, yet its meaning is more or less obvious. That which we make reference to was symbolized by the fact that the prophet is seen again and again on the mount. The first mention of him, 1 Kings 17.1, tells us that he was of the inhabitants of Gilead, which was a hilly section of the country. His memorable victory over the false prophets of Baal was upon Mount Carmel. After his slaughter of them at the brook Kishon and his brief word to the king, we are told that Ahab went up to eat and drink whereas Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, chapter 18, verse 42, which at once revealed their respective characters. When the Lord recovered him from his lapse, we read that he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God, 1 Kings 19.8. After he had delivered his message to Ahaziah, it is recorded, Behold, he sat on the top of a hill, 2 Kings 1.9. Thus Elijah was markedly the man of the mount. Now there is a mystical or spiritual significance in that, apparent unto an anointed eye, which we have termed elevation of spirit. By elevation of spirit we mean heavenly mindedness, the heart being raised above the poor things of this world, the affections being set upon things above. This is ever one of the effects or fruits of walking by faith, for faith has God for its object, and he dwells on high. The more our hearts are occupied with him whose throne is in heaven, the more are our spirits elevated above the earth. The more our minds are engaged with the perfections of him who is altogether lovely, the less will the things of time and sense have power to attract us. The more we dwell in the secret place of the Most High, the less will the baubles of men charm us. The same feature comes out prominently in the life of Christ. He was preeminently the man of the mount. His first sermon was delivered from one. He spent whole nights there. He was transfigured upon the holy mount. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Isaiah 40.31 Their bodies on earth, their hearts in heaven. Number four, Elijah was a mighty intercessor. Let it be pointed out that none but one who walks by faith who is in marked separation from evil around him, and who is characterized by elevation of spirit or heavenly mindedness, is qualified for such holy work. The prevalency of Elijah's intercession is recorded not only for our admiration, but emulation. Nothing is more calculated to encourage and embolden the Christian in his approaches to the throne of grace than to mark and recall how frail mortals like himself, unworthy and unprofitable sinners, supplicated God in the hour of need and obtained miraculous supplies from him. 
God delights for us to put him to the test, and therefore has he said, All things are possible to him that believeth. Mark 9.23 Wondrously was that exemplified in the life of Elijah, and so it should be in ours too. But we shall never have power in prayer while we give way to an evil heart of unbelief, or fraternize with religious hypocrites, or while we are absorbed with the things of time and sense. Faith, fidelity, and spirituality are necessary qualifications. In answer to the intercession of Elijah, the heavens were shut up for three and a half years so that it rained not at all. This teaches us that the supreme motive behind all our supplications must be the glory of God and the good of his people, the chief lessons inculcated by Christ in the family prayer. It also teaches that there are times when the servant of God may request his master to deal in judgment with his enemies. Drastic diseases call for drastic remedies. There are times when it is both right and necessary for a Christian to ask God to bring down his chastening rod on his backslidden and wayward people. We read that Paul delivered unto Satan certain ones who had made shipwreck of the faith that they might learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1.20 Jeremiah called on the Lord to pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not and upon the families that call not on thy name. Chapter 10 verse 25 The Lord Jesus interceded not only for his own, but also against Judas and his family. Psalm 109 But there is a brighter side to the efficacy of Elijah's intercession than the one contemplated in the preceding paragraph. It was in answer to his prayer that the widow's son was restored to life. 1 Kings 17 verses 19 and 22 What a proof was that, that nothing is too hard for the Lord, that in response to believing supplication he is able and willing to reverse what unto sight seems the most hopeless situation what possibilities to trustful and importunate prayer does that present man's extremity is indeed God's opportunity to show himself strong on our behalf but let it not be forgotten that behind the prophet's intercession there was a higher motive than the comforting of the widow's heart it was that his master might be glorified vindicated in the claims made by his servant. Ah, that is so important, though generally overlooked. Christian parents reading this chapter are most desirous that their children should be saved and pray daily for that end. Why? Is it only that they may have the comforting assurance that their loved ones have been delivered from the wrath to come? Or is it that God may be honored by their regeneration? It was in response to Elijah's intercession that the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Here, too, his petition was based on the plea for the Lord to vindicate his great and holy name before the vast assembly of his vacillating people and the heathen idolaters. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. 1 Kings 18.36 As we pointed out in an earlier chapter, That fire of the Lord was not only a solemn type of the divine wrath smiting Christ when bearing the sins of his people, but it was also a dispensational foreshadowing of the public descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, attesting God's acceptance of the sacrifice of his Son. Thus, the practical lesson for us is believingly to pray for more of the Spirit's power and blessing, that we may be favored with further manifestations of his presence with and in us. That we are warranted in so making request is evidenced by that word of our Lord. 
If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke 11.13 Pray for faith to lay hold of that promise. So too it was in answer to the prophet's intercession that the terrible drought was ended. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. James 5.18 The spiritual meaning and application of that is obvious. For many years past, the churches have been in a parched and languishing condition. This was evident from the varied expedients they resorted to in the attempt to revive and strengthen them. Even where carnal means were not employed with the object of attracting outsiders, religious specialists in the form of successful evangelists or renowned Bible teachers were called in to aid in extra meetings as sure a sign of the church's ill health as the summoning of a doctor. But artificial stimulants soon lose their efficacy and unless his health is restored by ordinary means, leave the patient worse than before. So it has been with the churches until their dry and dead condition is apparent even to themselves. Yet unless the end of the world be upon us, showers of blessing will yet descend, though possibly in different parts of the earth than formerly, and they will come at their appointed time in answer to some Elijah's prayer. Number five, Elijah was a man of intrepid courage, by which we mean not a natural bravery, but spiritual boldness. That distinction is an important one, yet it is rarely recognized. Few today seem capacitated to discriminate between what is of the flesh and what is wrought by the spirit. No doubt the prevailing habit of defining Bible terms by the dictionary rather than from their usage in Holy Writ, adds much to the confusion. Take, for example, the grace of spiritual patience. How often is it confounded with an even and placid temperament? And because they possess not such a natural disposition, many of the Lord's people imagine they have no patience at all. The patience of which the Holy Spirit is the author is not a calm equanimity which never gets irritated by delays, nor is it that gentle graciousness which bears insults and injuries without retaliation or even murmuring. Rather is that much closer akin to meekness. How many have been puzzled by those words, Let us run with patience the race set before us. Hebrews 21.1 They create their own difficulty by assuming that patience is a passive rather than an active grace. The patience of Christians is not a passive virtue, but an active grace not a natural endowment, but a supernatural fruit. It signifies endurance. It is that which enables the saints to persevere in the face of discouragements, to hold on his way despite all opposition. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 four five zero 